Welcome to the Women in Wales' first Poetry in a Climate of Change podcast. I am Jordan Imani Keith, Seattle Civic Poet, 2019-2022. This series highlights the shared experiences of women who recognize the intersectional risks and benefits we share with the whales of the Salish Sea. Hi, my name is Jordan Keith, and I want to welcome you to the Women and Whales First Poetry in a Climate of Change, and by you, I mean Kamna Shastri. Kamna is a community journalist with a background in sociology and environmental studies. Shastri is especially interested in the messiness of cultural identity and breaking down the false distinctions between humanity and nature. Poetry has long been my lifelong method of self-expression, Kamna says. So I'm excited to welcome you and to have a conversation about your work in our collective pod of writers and what you're passionate about. So welcome. Thank you, Jordan. I know that you are a very experienced journalist as well. And I wonder if that and your environmental studies played out in any way in your choice to respond to the call to join the writing workshop. And, you know, the question that was asked of anyone applying was, do you recognize yourself as an endangered species, the Urban Wilderness Project question, are you an endangered species? And I, I needed people who already knew that. Could you talk to me about what led you to apply and, and if at all, how your studies and your work as a journalist played out in your thoughts? Yeah, definitely. It was so interesting because I think it came at the right time. And I graduated from college five years ago, so I feel like I'm young and I'm learning all these things. But I'd been doing journalism and really taking it seriously for about four and a half years at that point. And I was hitting this place where I felt stuck, like kind of caged in the parameters of of what journalism is. And I think as someone who's always kind of thinking about social justice and has always felt it ever since I was a child, I think I had that. I didn't have the words, you know, I didn't I didn't know all the jargon around social justice and environmental justice, but I, I felt I felt it in my body and I think in a spiritual way as well. And I realized, I think in journalism, I went into journalism wanting to, you know, that kind of ideal, idealistic thinking of, I want to make the world a better place and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually I realized I'm in my little corner of the world. I can't make the entire world a better place, but I can do little things in my own community. And so journalism and my focus on local community journalism kind of helped hone that. But I still found myself feeling stuck because journalism didn't allow me to kind of lean into the feelings, into the emotions, into the... I had to approach every story with a certain kind of objectivity and distance that didn't always feel like I could really lean in to what would come up for me in in reporting a story. And then sometimes I feel like you have to, you can't say the truth for what it is. And I think poetry really allows for that. You know, if you want to make connections across, for example, across 
kind of the connections like we've talked about in our workshop, right, about what happens to the human body is the same kind of process that's happening to to whales and in the Puget Sound and to other creatures and that we share space with. You know, if I were to say that in an article, I have to go through and get gazillion sources to back it up. I can't just use that intuition and my own observation to draw these connections. So I started to feel really limited. And then I was also drained. I mean, 2020 was, I think, all of us have felt it in different intersecting ways. And I was tired of reporting on things while trying to process a lot of those traumas at the same time. And so when I saw this call, I was like, this is kind of where I want to be in a space with other people who have that mindset of kind of creative writing and poetry and who want to make these connections in ways that our mainstream media doesn't always allow us to make. You know, when we talk about the environment, when we talk about humanity, there's a spiritual element that I don't think, like we're basically, there are a lot of things that I I can't say in a newspaper article that I can say in poetry. And I felt like I needed the space to do that. Um, and so I, I actually applied at the same time that I quit my job as a staff reporter. So it felt like a funny transition, but also the right one. I'm seeing now months later that it, it does feel like it's kind of pushing me in a different direction. And the endangered species part, I think I relate to that in a couple different layers the first one is I think our humanity feels endangered to me right now, just as, as people and the ways where they were forced into these cages of like behaving in a capitalist society. But it's I can't even get the words out for that because it's, it's not just that to me. It's like we've created these cages for ourselves and endangered our own humanity. And then when we see what we, we've done to, um, you know, like orca whales in the Puget Sound and so many other endangered species, that to me is a an outward manifestation of what we've done to our own minds is kind of how I think about it. And then personally, I've also been thinking recently about women as endangered species. We've talked about that in our workshop too, right? Mm-hmm. As being kind of um, hunted in many ways. And we see that play out in different ways. Like I'm thinking of the how May 5th was the National Day of Awareness for missing and murdered indigenous women. And also, personally, I was thinking too about how I, you know, I I have this genetic condition called albinism, which affects pigment production in the body from birth. And I'm very lucky to live in a country where I'm not hunted down, but there are countries in the world um, where people with albinism are they are literally endangered and they're hunted for their body parts what? and murdered in, in parts of Africa. Yeah. I forget. I saw a news article recently where those rates were going up and I like I clicked away as fast as I could because I wasn't ready to process that. But like that's that's another way that I can kind of, I think, relate to that idea of also being in a body that's not not your average experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely... I feel like I, when I think of endangered species, I feel like this this threat to not just the present and having a world of species diversity in the present, but also like just the sense of freedom where you don't have to worry about your survival. And I think there are so many people where I don't think we have that sense of freedom, even in a, even in a seemingly free world. Um, in a democratic country like the United States, I just think about how our future and 
with the climate and everything, there are days where I just feel, I feel really down in the dumps and I feel like we're all endangered as, as humanity too. So though all of those things kind of came together in my mind. And when I saw this call, I was like, okay, this feels like the right place to be. So I'm really, really glad that I got to be a part of it. I feel really lucky. Wow. Okay. Your answer was rich with things I actually want to dig into a little bit because when you said our humanity is endangered, that really caught me at a different level than the call, really, because it just expanded my perspective. I was thinking about our singularity, that there's only one of us on the planet and we hold a specific place. It's not just our fingerprints, you know. We, in our families, or it is our fingerprints in our families, we, our families, our communities, our connections now in each other's lives, having participated in this workshop together and coming to know one another. No one else can occupy the individual spaces that each one of us occupies and brought to the workshop. So when you say our humanity is endangered, what cages for ourselves do you mean? Because I certainly think about the orcas being literally caged that were captured from Pen Cove, um, from our endangered pod, and our humanity being endangered. Like, what does that mean? And how can we rescue ourselves? I have thought about it a lot. And I think I've, I feel like recently... The things that I, I write just for myself, so I usually write poetry when I can't contain things and they just spill out. So that's my mode of getting it out. They're, they've been very angry, a lot of the stuff I've written recently, because I think I feel that cage and I, I feel it in in the ways that we are. I mean, to some extent, you know, as people and families and communities, we're always going to have conflict and friction with one another. I think that's inevitable. And it's it's learning how to deal with that and come back to balance as like a social ecosystem of people who are connected in different ways. But I think the endangerment of humanity to me feels like you can see some of it in our political divisions in this country, but also kind of the rise of nationalism throughout the world. Mm -hmm. But even underneath that, right, for me, it's this sense of like constantly fighting to either put each other in categories or push against the categories that we are put in by other people. And there are days, and I kind of feel like I'm reflecting on years of like, where am I in all this? Like, I don't get any self-determination because I'm just constantly, I feel like I'm constantly ping, playing referee with all of the identity politics around me. And I'm noticing now how much it it makes it hard to really, truly connect with others because I'm always playing defense for myself. And I think a lot of us are doing that when I look at some of the conflicts that come up even around, you know, racial justice activism too and and kind of things like gatekeeping and all of that. And I don't know what to make of it all, but all of those things, and I think especially because I have been in Seattle, I do feel like I'm kind of tuned into the to our equity circles here. And as much as I really love that and love the work that people are doing towards racial and social justice, I also see the tensions that come in and drawing division and 
really clearly like demarcating boundaries around ourselves and like I am specifically this this and this identity mm-hmm. and therefore this is what is like makes me markedly different from you and we're never going to understand each other because of that and I think I've really been feeling that even around conversations around power and privilege and I feel conflicted saying that because all of these are important conversations and, and need to happen and we have to recognize our own privileges. But I kind of see, I still see the toxicity of, of our overall system, right, which is constantly caging people. And um, I was reading Rena Price's article about Washington's poet laureate, right, her article about Lolita, the the orca that was captured from the Sailor's Sea and taken down to Miami's Seaquarium. And when I was reading about the description of being in that tank, right, that teeny tiny tank mm-hmm. for this giant creature, I felt that physically because I, I think I feel that. Um, I feel that caged feeling in, in a very kind of visceral way. Um, I felt it for years, actually. Where? And, where in your body do you feel it? Feel it in my arms for some reason. Oftentimes, like uh, like I'm right now, I'm like really cringing into myself. Um, mm-hmm. If you were to see me, but like my limbs tighten, and my 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 head, like my head feels really tight, mm-hmm. and it just if I feel like I'm trapped. And I think when I read that article, I I could. They're very different circumstances, but I've I could relate to that feeling in my own way, and I'm still trying to make sense of that. I still feel like I haven't figured out what is really behind that caged feeling, but I feel like it's this messiness of generations of people, you know, dividing ourselves, and sometimes the cage is imposed from outside, and sometimes I think like it might be self-imposed as well. Like I'm thinking about that for myself and. How much of that feeling is me creating a division between myself and others and and staying in that little teeny cage that I create and how much of it really is other people, you know, kind of telling me to stay in my own in my own space. You know, when you're saying that and for the audience who can't see us, we can see one another and it's the we're live in seeing each other as opposed to how we've spent the weeks on video and because of that, and you're saying, Cage, I'm seeing you the way suddenly I imagine that the orcas who's stuck in that glass-walled aquarium, like, I can see you, but I can't get to you. Like, I know that you're there. But when you're saying Cage, what keeps coming to mind is that that imprisoned feeling, but the reality that the pandemic, for example, has brought up, like that people who are actually physically imprisoned and certainly people who have come to our borders and are now in cages, the air that they breathe still leaves that cage and the the water of our breath still mingles, you know? So... No matter what, it's very different even than this, but eventually our breath and our the water of our cells would mingle even in here between these these spaces we're seeing. Your poetry knocks it out of the park. I I meant to ask you earlier to share your poem, 
because it it adds. Uh, I'm I'm using the pun on purpose. It adds such depth to what you're saying. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. But would you please read it, and um, then we'll we'll come back from there. Sure. Lullaby for Sister Whale and Sister Woman. All land that touches all ancestors, the shoreline is another kind of horizon. It claims us in between. Song of whale and melody of voice, the ether of sky cycles through sea, you and me. Shoreline is another kind of horizon, fluid, malleable, a border of mind. The ether of sky cycles through sea, you and me, stuck between seen and unseen. Fluid, malleable, a border of mind, you tell me I am not her. Stuck between seen and unseen, putrid pollution stretched upon water, upon blood. You tell me I am not her, so my bones don't rattle my skin, but skin will perish and bone will break through time. Calcium of knuckle mimicked beneath Sister Whale's fin. So my bones don't rattle my skin, tell us we are winning. Calcium of knuckle mimicked beneath Sister Whale's fin, we mirror one another, shattered light refracted from within. Tell us we are winning before everything falls into disarray, because chasing this moment is time. Remember breath of all kinds mingle before everything falls to disarray in the songs of whale and the melodies of voice breath of all kinds mingle on all lands that touch all ancestors thank you i know as writers sometimes our poems tell us and you just said calcium of knuckle Mirror, Sister Wales. Will you repeat that line? Yeah, I think it was calcium of knuckle mimicked beneath Sister Wales' fin. Okay. So you just talked about earlier feeling trapped and where you felt it in your body. And that's the line that you wrote about a very specific part of the body, that part that they think of as a remnant appendage from belief of what the whale was to what it is. And that's where you feel it. And for us as mammals, <laughs> the orca is the only other mammal that is distributed across the planet the way that we are as humans and that is matrilinear, spend so long with their families. I hear that in your poem in a different way than I've thought of it before because of that comment, because of where you say you feel it in your body and in your head. Like, when I saw you gesture, what I thought of was echolocation and what has been talked about as the torture it, it is for an orca to be caged, even if it's a glass cage, that they echolocate and they would find nothing in it bouncing back. I'm framing it this way because I want you to if you will, unpack a little bit more for us as listeners, if at all it's come to you when people have been very excited about the white orca that appeared. 
You know what's funny is I've always had an affinity for that one like white being that pops up in a in a gathering of other colors. Like there used to be forget me nots in our backyard when I was growing up, and I would get so excited when I would see that one little white flower amidst all the blue ones because I'd be like, oh, you're like me. Um, And what I mean by that is, so I had this genetic condition called albinism. And I think when people see me, they just assume that I'm ethnically, racially white European. My family is from India. They all look Indian. Yeah, no mistake when you see them. And so albinism is a recessive condition. So both my parents had to be carriers for that gene for that to happen. And it, you know, it doesn't affect a lot about my life. Well, that's not true. It affects a lot. But, you know, it's kind of one of those things where I think the problematic aspect of it is very invisible to people when they meet me. It does have a lot of issues with vision and then heightened risk of skin cancer. And there's some other syndromes that I'm not very, you know, I personally don't know a lot about. But so anyway, I think from a cultural identity standpoint, I grew up in a very Indian household, Um, English. I picked up English uh, from school. I spoke Tamil at home. That was our, that was my mother tongue. Still is my mother tongue. I just speak less of it now. And I I think I grew up surrounded with, with Indian culture at home. And I grew up in the Seattle area. So, you know, in terms of geographic location, this is my home. But culturally, I was very, very um, Indian and still do feel that way for the most part. And, you know, I think my mom was, she just gave me the facts when I asked her, why do I look different from, you know, you and my dad and the rest of my family? And she was like, Here, this is how genes work. This is what happened. She she didn't sugarcoat it. So I was very comfortable with that. And I think as a child, I think I was very confident in my skin. I was like, this is just who I am. Deal with it. I'll give it to you straight. As soon as you meet me, I had this kind of this uh, spiel that I would tell people like, my name is Kamna. I, I look this way for this reason. and um, But I'm actually of Indian background. But I think as I grew older and maybe as I hit those teenage years, I became a lot more less comfortable with it and kind of wanting to I didn't see it as just a fact of my life and this is just who I am, but I felt really weird about it because that's when, you know, as a teenager, you want to belong. You want to be, you don't want to stand out. And I I didn't stand out among my white peers, but I didn't, my my cultural experience was not that of of white America. So I didn't, I didn't feel like I fit in anywhere. I didn't feel like I fit in with my peers. I had completely different cultural references. I didn't know what TV shows they were watching because I grew up on uh, Bollywood movies at home. And amongst my, you know, culturally similar peers in my, you know, in our Indian community, it was really hard to find belonging because I was seen as the foreigner or the other. Mm. Um, And I I think it's very strange because I really wanted to belong to, like, a, a cultural group of young people who I could identify with and kind of feel like, because I think some of the cultural challenges of navigating very two different worldviews, right? Because my parents immigrated here. So they have a very, there's a lot of culture clash that happens. I resonated, like that experience was a, was really important to me and still is. But I, I've always struggled to find community with people who share that experience because I feel like the physical just gets in the way of that. And there's this immediate assumption that, oh, you know, you're your white passing, or they look at me and they're like, you're white passing, so you must have it all all easy. 
And, you know, even in my family, the experience between me and my my brother, I'm sure, is extremely different. He and I have never talked about it, so I don't know. Wow. I don't know what he thinks. Um, but, you know, like I know for a fact that I do have white privilege when I'm walking around, you know, because I, I, I recognize where I do receive it. Um, but I also don't feel like I'm, I will be honest, like I do worry about my family, especially these days. Um, every time they leave the house, when my, sometimes my, you know, when they come to like visit me or when I visit them or anytime they leave, you know, their four walls, I, I do, I, I don't say it very often cause you know, I don't want to dwell on that, but there's a very real fear. And so I think I feel often caught between those experiences. Like I'm not, I recognize that the way I look does distance me from the full experience of being, you know, visibly being a person of color from an immigrant background, but I'm also not that distant from it. Mm. So that's been really hard to navigate the older I'm getting. And that's what I'm saying about the humanity, you know, being endangered humanity. I think as a child, I was much more in tune with the fact that, like, this is just my physical appearance. It doesn't decide who I am, and I'm not going to let it stop me from truly wanting to connect with others. But now I feel like it's much more of an inhibitor. Mm. And some of that might just be growing up or the climate of our country and our world right now. Um, but in, in relation to to the white orca, and I think I, I probably have to learn more about it, but I think it is, it's, it's interesting because albinism, and I, I know for the white orca, it's a different condition. It's not the same one that leads to that difference in pigmentation and color. But albinism is a condition across different races and across different species. So you'll find there's albino alligators. It's not just something that affects humans. And it's a reminder, too, in an interesting way that we are far more the boundary between like humans and the rest of the creatures on the earth are not like, what is that boundary? Does it even exist? If the same genetic stuff can happen to all of us. Mm. Um, so I, th I do think about that a lot. It's, it's an interesting reminder. It's an excellent reminder. And it's another echo of what you said about cages. And it's like, is it the cage we create or is it really a cage? And when you said about your mother tongue, that really brought it also full circle, the conversation, because separate from the others, the orca is still speaking its mother tongue. Like it can come back to the Sailor's Sea and reunite with its pot, but it also will always have had a different experience. And when you talked about adolescence, I thought they deliberately captured the young. So it's had a very different life. Yeah, and kind of for me, I think the mother tongue is a perfect place to end. And I think the poem that I read relates to that too is um, the melody of voice and, you know, the songs of whales and the idea of lullabies that I used in that poem is highly, for me, came from the idea of mother tongue. For me, hearing and speaking Tamil is like, there is, that feels like home to me mm -hmm. in a way that I'm getting farther and farther away from the language and um, definitely not as fluent as I used to be, but nothing feels like the way I, I can't describe it. It's like, it's like a homecoming. It's like a sense of belonging when I hear the language. And it's also specifically Tamil lullabies, which I'll sometimes put on my phone and go to sleep listening to them. 
they bring me back to center. And I, the reason I kind of bring that up is because whales, right, they also have this language that they pass down, as we've talked about in the workshop, and they have the concept of songs. And um, for me, so much of my connection to culture and language is specifically related to my mother tongue and, and its music and what it, you know, what it feels like. And I feel like if we could lean into that feeling of belonging and find whatever makes us feel that way, there's a huge centering that happens. So I just wanted to say that because I think that parallel for me between whales and humans with music and language is really important and strong. And I would like to ask you if you would to sing any piece of any lullaby because I want to be immersed in it. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's so nice that you asked that. Um, so this actually is a kind of folk, folksy, but it did show up in the uh, Pi's lullaby in the movie Life of Pi, but it is a folk drawn from folk music. So I'll sing that. Kanni Kanmani Kanurangai Kanni Mailo Tugai Mailo holy to me. Thank you again, Kamna Shastri. Thank you again. Thanks for having me and for this really wonderful conversation. The Women and Whales Poetry in a Climate of Change podcast was made possible through the support of the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Jack Straw Cultural Center, and Urban Wilderness Project. I'd like to thank Gretchen Yanover for our theme music, and thank you listeners for joining us. Learn more about the Women in Wales Poetry in a Climate of Change Project at urbanwildernessproject.org.